Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, it's been called one of the most effective and inspiring speeches of all time. On June 18, 1940, Prime Minister Winston Churchill was faced with the challenge of rallying Parliament and the entire nation of Great Britain to stop the advancing German Empire from conquering all of Europe. And he did it using the power of words. Allow me to give you some context. In the spring of 1940, England was neck deep in World War II. The seven country alliance that they had formed with Poland, Norway, Denmark, Belgium, and the Netherlands, and France at the beginning of the war fell apart because the previous six countries had all been conquered by Germany. Great Britain was the only nation standing between Adolf Hitler and his goal of controlling all of Europe. They were literally the last man standing. Just two weeks prior, France had fallen when the Nazis were able to overrun Paris. Additional victories by the German war machine led to the now famous evacuation of 300,000 British, French, and Belgian troops from the seaport of Dunkirk. If you haven't seen it already, I recommend watching the 2017 film Dunkirk in order to grasp the significance of that evacuation. The miracle of Dunkirk, as some have called it now, is really a massive retreat by British forces, having suffered significant losses and consecutive losses, excuse me, to Germany. They were retreating in order to avoid losing any more of their infantry so they would be able to protect their homeland. All this on top of the fact that major buildings in central London had already been fortified with sandbags for months. Searchlights had been roaming the night skies for months as the Brits anxiously awaited to be bombed by the Germans. For all these reasons, some in Parliament were urging Churchill to just negotiate terms of peace with Hitler. I mean, we, just, we should just cut our losses. Britain was losing the war. Their back was against the ropes. Morale was low. Anxiety was high. And the future was bleak. Having just taken office, Churchill courageously and passionately addressed Parliament and the citizens of England. Imagine if you would, millions of people, families, and homes gathered around their radios, sitting on the edge of their seats, and clinging to every word that their prime minister spoke that day. Before the final climax of his speech, Churchill reminded the British people that their prior victory in World War I a few years earlier 
they also, before winning that war, were overwhelmed with odds they just couldn't fathom. They were facing devastating defeats, and there was a national despair. However, their resilience in World War I outlasted the Germans and led to the end of the war. Next, on that day, June 18, 1940, in his speech, the Prime Minister acknowledges the defeat of France, while at the same time explaining what was at stake if Germany continued to expand their empire. So he was honest about what they were up against. Churchill said, quote, The battle of France is over. I expect that the battle of Britain is about to begin. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. And if we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free and the life of the world may move forward into broad sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age. And finally, the Prime Minister closed with this stirring call to action that has made this speech so famous. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth shall last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. Now, as you all know, and history has proven, Nazi Germany did not succeed in their second attempt to conquer the world. And by God's grace, Great Britain, the United States, and the Allies prevailed. Similar to Winston Churchill, the Apostle Paul ends his letter to the church in Ephesus with a call to arms, a battle cry, a pep talk to inspire us and the Ephesians to link arms with believers all around the world in an extremely important and ongoing spiritual war. We're continuing or resuming, excuse me, our series in the book of Ephesians today called Chosen. I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Ephesians chapter 6 and to pull out the sermon notes you received when you came in uh, this morning. If you forgot to grab a sermon note handout, there should still be some on the table in the back. And if you've got your Bible, you can borrow one of our Bibles as well off that table. It's okay to grab it now if you need it. I will not mock you, point you out, or uh, heckle you in any way. Now, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, we've not been in Ephesians for a while, so let's briefly review what we've learned about this book. Ephesians is one of four letters that the Apostle Paul wrote during his first incarceration in Rome for preaching the gospel. The other three letters are Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. They are commonly called, all four of these, the prison epistles. 
The apostle had helped plant a church in the city of Ephesus during his second missionary journey in 53 AD. He then left, returned a year later, and stayed three years in Ephesus, preaching and teaching. It's now 60 to 61 AD, or about three to four years after his departure, in which he is writing them. Our theme verse for this series has been Ephesians 1.4. It summarizes Paul's point and what he's trying to convey and get across. It's the nail that he's driving home throughout the entire letter. If you haven't done so already, I want to encourage you to underline it in your Bible. But let's say it out loud together. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Throughout this letter, Paul reminds us, that he reminds those of us who know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, directly and indirectly, he says this, that we were chosen for a purpose. We didn't choose him, he chose us. And for that reason, our position in Christ should determine our purpose in life. Well, then what's our purpose in life? It is to glorify God in everything that we do. And if you don't know Jesus yet as your Lord and Savior, you can have a divine purpose in your life by repenting of your sin and trusting in Him alone for your salvation. Now, after explaining the theological position in Christ that believers enjoy in chapters 1 through 3, and then making practical applications in chapters 4 through 6, the apostle now is he's sort of uh, circling the tower, uh, coming in for a landing here at the end of his letter. And he reveals that the difficulties of living the Christian life are not just, they're not just caused by the world and our inherited sin nature, but also by the devil himself. And so our big idea for today, the sermon in one sentence, is this. All Christ followers have been drafted into a spiritual war. All Christ followers have been drafted into a spiritual war. I'm intentionally using the word draft because just like our nation has done in past wars, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, You've been called up to serve your king in an epic battle. It's not an invitation that you can just decline. And it's not a duty that you can escape from by just moving to Canada. You, you can't say I'm a conscientious objector from this battle. You're in whether you want to be in or not. Now, uh, just to be frank with you, uh, the topic of spiritual warfare is very challenging to grasp because it's so mysterious in the scriptures. It, it focuses on a realm that we cannot see with our own eyes. And as a result, there are extremes that have developed in the body of Christ when it comes to this topic. And I want to be honest about that. For example, uh, the more charismatic segments of the body of Christ generally have a lower view of Scripture, and a higher view of man. And this causes members of that tribe to place a higher value on man's emotions and feelings, which in turn 
can then lead to giving the devil more credit than he's due. And it can cause them to also underestimate man's own sinfulness, his own uh, culpability for his sin. And the result is a, is a frequent blame shifting or the devil made me do it kind of mindset instead of taking responsibility for their sin. And in some cases, it leads to a demon in every bush worldview. That if anything I set out to do, or they set out to do, excuse me, is thwarted somehow, it's Satan that's stopping them. Because their motives are always pure, and, in, and, and God's always for them, and always wants them to have whatever they want. And so there's an unhealthy overemphasis on spiritual warfare. On the other extreme, the more reformed segments of the body of Christ that have a higher view of Scripture and a lower view of man also struggle with this topic. This causes members of this tribe to give the devil less credit than he's due by underestimating his work in the world. And this can sometimes result in believers trying to live the Christian life in the flesh, in their own strength, instead of in the power of the Holy Spirit. Neither extreme is good. However, with the Lord's help, I want to do my best to be as balanced as possible in tackling this difficult subject today. And as well, we'll be talking about it next week. I do know this for certain, though. If you are going to survive as a Christian in this life, then you will have to engage in spiritual warfare. That is a non-negotiable. And so, having said that, let's look at the text together, Ephesians chapter 6. And I'm only going to tackle three verses this morning, but these three verses have a lot in them. And so, the first verse, verse 10, Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Here's the first point on your outline today. Using the power of the Lord is operationally essential. Using the power of the Lord is operationally essential. Be strong in the Lord. The word the apostle uses here, the original text, means to be strengthened or to be empowered. He uses what New Testament scholars call the present passive imperative of this word. The present tense means that it's an ongoing need for us. It'll never go away. The imperative means this is a command, not a suggestion. And the passive voice means we cannot find this strength within ourselves. The strength for the battle must come from a source outside of ourselves. Where? Well, Paul tells us in verse 10. Look at your Bible again. In the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. The imperative mood also conveys that we are not to be passive in this empowerment. Even though we cannot find the strength in ourselves to wage war, we are to seek it out from the Lord. Understanding this is essential in spiritual warfare because 
Physical strength cannot win a spiritual battle. Sheer determination cannot win it. Uh, Outsmarting the enemy cannot do it. Human endurance cannot hold out against angelic power. Humans cannot overpower demons, but believers empowered by the one who created the demons can. Now, you, stay, you might still be wondering, well, you know, that's great, but how are we supposed to be strong in the Lord? Well, in a, in a general sense, I think it simply means we need to abide in Him. To abide means to remain, to spend time in one place. Some of you have heard me say before that to abide means to worship the Lord at least weekly, to spend time in His Word and in prayer daily, to depend on Him hourly, and to rest in Him minutely. And yes, minutely is a word. I looked it up in the dictionary. And so all Christ followers have been drafted into a spiritual war. And the first thing that Christian soldiers must learn is where to get their power from. Now let's look at the text again. Verse 11, as Paul continues, he says, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Here's point number two on your outline. Learning the profile of our enemy is tactically advisable. Learning the profile of the enemy, of our enemy, excuse me, is tactically advisable. Paul says the way to be strong in the Lord is to put on the whole armor of God. Now, I will unpack the whole armor of God in much more detail next week. But one benefit of putting on the armor of God is found here in verse 11. You see it there in your Bible that you may be able to stand. To stand. It's a word that's repeated a few times in this whole section of uh, verse 10 to verse 20 on spiritual warfare. The word for stand in the Greek text is a first century military term that describes holding onto a position. The word is used in this passage to emphasize the importance of holding on to ground that Jesus has already won in the war. So, for example, with Jesus, we no longer need to fear death because he conquered death. We no longer need to fear people because he overcame people. We no longer need to be slaves to sin because Jesus also defeated sin with his perfect life and death on the cross. And so we don't want to give that ground back to the adversary. Stand also urges us to not let the enemy gain new ground. For example, by putting on the full armor of God and standing, we can prevent the enemy from dividing our church, from destroying any more marriages, or deceiving us with his lies about God. Well, what are we, what are we to stand against? Well, Paul answers that question as well in verse 11. The schemes of the devil. The word for schemes in the original refers to cunning arts, deceit, craftiness, or trickery. 
The use of the word schemes reminds us that the enemy is cunning and crafty and covert. He and his demons prefer not to be seen so that they are not detected. And one of their most successful missions, or shall I say strategies, better that would be a better choice of word, one of their most successful strategies and one of the things they want to try to get all of us to do is to not acknowledge their existence. The adversary and his demons prefer to run black ops under the radar in the darkness of night. And so just like every soldier who has gone to war or athlete who has participated in competition, all Christ followers need to learn the strengths and weaknesses of the enemy. His craftiness and his deceitfulness is all the more reason why we must be aware of his methods. And so we can do this by asking ourselves this question. What does God's word tell us? About the devil. Well, I've got three subpoints for you here that should help us on your outline. I want to encourage you to fill these in as well. The first thing that God's word tells us about the devil is letter A his origin is heavenly, not hellish. His origin is heavenly, not hellish. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, during the creation account, we're told that everything the Lord has made, he called very good. This would include Satan and his demons, because they had already been created. The enemy was one of thousands of angels created for the purpose of serving, speaking for, and glorifying God. Sadly, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, and Revelation chapter 12, tell us that the enemy led a group of angels in revolt against God in heaven. And as a consequence, for their unsuccessful mutiny, Satan and one-third of the angels that followed him were banished from God's presence. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 25 to 26, and... Matthew 25, verse 41, tell us that in this current age, Satan has his own kingdom that is at war with God's kingdom. And because the enemy was created by God, one of the things we can conclude is that he is not God. Therefore, when it comes to strengths and weaknesses, he has limitations. He is not, for example, omniscient. Thus, he cannot read our minds. He doesn't know everything. The enemy is not omnipresent. Thus, he can't be everywhere at once like God is. He's not omnipotent. Thus, he, he has limits to his power. Something else worth mentioning is, is that although the enemy is powerful and building his own kingdom, he is still subject to God's sovereignty. Or as the great reformer Martin Luther once famously said, even the devil is God's devil. In other words, although 1 Peter 5.8 says the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, 
The Lord still has that lion on a leash. The enemy can do nothing without permission from the Lord first. And this is most evident in the first two chapters of Job. You can read that perhaps during your devotion time this week. Next, letter B. Uh, the second thing that the scriptures tell us about the enemy, and that is that his many names describe his character. His many names describe his character. The Lord, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, telling the authors of scripture what to write down, has given the adversary many different names that tell us who he is and what he does. A few worth mentioning are the accuser, the tempter, the evil one. Jesus in John chapter 8 called him a murderer and the father of, father of lies. He's called by John uh, in John 12 and John 14, the prince of this world. Now, tempter is one name in particular that I want to comment on. We need to realize that the enemy is only a tempter. He's not a dictator. And there's an implication for us there. That means that no human being can ever say the devil made me do it. The scriptures are clear, especially in James chapter 1, verses 13 to 15, that neither God nor Satan can make anyone sin. And despite the enemy's very crafty work, we are all responsible and we are all accountable for our sin. The enemy may bait, he puts the bait on the hook, but he cannot make us bite, to use a fishing illustration. He just knows what lies to tell us, and he knows whether we like chocolate, vanilla, strawberry, or butterscotch worms. And he knows one type of worm of certain flavor will work on you, but it may not work on your spouse or your child. So although he's not uh, omniscient, he's not all-knowing like God, he still knows a lot. He knows our strengths and weaknesses. Next, letter C. His movement is more covert than overt. His movement is more covert than overt. I sometimes think Hollywood has played a role in this with horror movies and um, Satan certainly and his demons are, uh, sell movie tickets and I think maybe that's conditioned Americans, possibly American Christians, to think that uh, the adversary only does the overt, the spectacular, the, the wow, fireworks kind of stuff, but actually that's not true. We know from the scriptures that the adversary and his demons are able to do overt big splash kind of things, such as possessing unbelievers, causing physical injury or disease, creating false miracles, or persuading people to murder. However, more often than not, and I have, I have more scripture to support this than I do the, the other, which is more scripture to support the covert, 
Less scripture on the overt. More often than not, the adversary and his demons prefer to be covert. They prefer counterintelligence, sabotage, and other clandestine operations. The adversary and his demons, according to the scriptures, deceive and lie. They spread false teaching. They try to get believers to doubt God's character. They tempt people to sin. They twist God's word to make it say things it doesn't say. They oppose the spread of the gospel. They cause relational conflict in the church. Spread idle gossip and slander. Meaning, and let me qualify that. This is Paul speaking in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 5, verses 11 to 15. He takes the gossip and slander that sinners do, and the adversary spreads it even further. The adversary doesn't do the gossip and slandering himself. And so the enemy, he would rather, let me just drive this home here for you and make it very practical. The enemy would much rather keep you from doing your morning devotions in God's word than to make something float across the room so that you become afraid of him. He would rather fill you with pride so that you think all your marriage problems are your spouse's fault instead of showing you some false miracle. He would, he would rather make you afraid to share the gospel than scare you with a demon in the middle of the night or give you a nightmare. Those things are too obvious. He is much more subtle and cunning than that. He, he does all this by whispering thoughts in our heads that are contrary to God's word. And so, all Christ followers have been drafted into a spiritual war. And the second thing Christian soldiers must learn is who their enemy is. Let's look back at the text one last time at verse 12, our third verse for this morning. Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Here's uh, number three in your outline. Knowing the place of the battle is strategically effectual. Knowing the place of the battle is strategically effectual. What I mean by this is that knowing where the battle is fought is just as important as learning how the battle is fought. Paul says in verse 12, for we do not wrestle this is an interesting word choice by the apostle here. It's the Greek word pale uh, that is used in, it was used in the first century Roman world to refer to the Olympic event of wrestling. Wrestling, as you know, is a face-to-face, hand-to-hand sport with the goal of throwing your opponent to the mat so that you can pin them. Now, why would Paul use this word? Well, because engaging in spiritual warfare and living the Christian life as it is meant to be lived requires skill 
and stamina and strength and spiritual fitness. It's difficult. It's not easy. Becoming a Christian is not a crutch. I think my life got harder after I became a believer. Some of you might say the same thing. And just as in wrestling, spiritual warfare, the enemy just doesn't give up. You may pin him one day, but the next day he'll come right back at you. Round two. You may lose round two, but then he'll be back the next day for round three. It's ongoing and perpetual. So who are we, or what are we wrestling against? Well, again, look at verse 12. Paul says we, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Flesh and blood is a metaphor for human beings. Now, please notice in verse 12, he's saying we are not wrestling with human beings. Instead, he goes on to list spiritual forces we are wrestling with. And so every other entity listed by Paul in verse 12 is in the spiritual realm. Rulers, authorities. He's not talking about kings or politicians or presidents here. He's talking about spiritual authorities, demons, and the devil himself in the spiritual realm that are working behind the scenes like a puppet master, pulling strings to make things happen in the physical realm. Now, it's very important that we grasp what the apostle is saying here, and that is that everything that we see with our eyes in the physical realm has a spiritual cause. And I would say that is one of the key principles to learning how to do spiritual warfare. So I'll say that again for you. Everything that we see in the physical realm has a spiritual cause behind it. What happens in heaven and hell has an effect on earth. Therefore, our battle is not against men, women, and organizations who oppose the work of God, but rather against the spiritual forces who are behind the men, women, and organizations opposed to what God wants. Now, on a practical level, and a practical individual level, excuse me, this means that if, for example, you struggle with depression or you begin to struggle with depression, the first thing you should do is seek biblical counseling to see if there is a spiritual cause. Then, if all your spiritual options have been exhausted, go see your doctor to investigate whether there is a physical cause, such as a hormone imbalance or neurotransmitters that are off, or adrenal fatigue, or side effects from another medication. Unfortunately, there are too many Christians who maybe start to struggle with depression who then immediately run to their doctor to get a pill because they want instant relief instead of seeing if perhaps there's a spiritual cause behind their depression. 
I don't have time to elaborate on what those causes could be. I have touched on the topic of depression in other sermons that are on our website. If you need, need me to point you to some of those, just let me know or send me an email. But all Christ followers have been drafted into a spiritual war. And the third thing that Christian soldiers must learn is the location of the battle. Well, what do we do now? We've looked at three verses packed with truth about a battle that we can't see with our physical eyes. What are we to do? Well, here's a couple of applications. Romans 12.2 calls us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds instead of being conformed to the ways of the world. So the best way we do this is by allowing the Word of God to change our thinking and committing to doing what it says. And so the first application that comes to mind is that we need to put on spiritual goggles, spiritual vision goggles, excuse me. Put on spiritual vision goggles. Before you can join the battle, you first have to see that one exists. You first have to see that one exists. And this will require you to put on spiritual vision goggles. U.S. forces who are performing nighttime operations are equipped with night vision goggles. I'm sure most of you have seen them on TV or in a movie. Night vision goggles amplify existing light and heat signatures so they can produce an image on the screen otherwise not visible under the cover of darkness. The objects are really there, but the soldier cannot see them with his or her own eyes. Well, in a similar sense, we as Christian soldiers need the assistance of God's word to see what is really happening in what Paul calls this present darkness. Simply put, the more time we spend in God's word, the easier it will be to see where the enemy is at work. So put on your spiritual vision goggles, dear friends, and do it each morning throughout the week, and you'll be able to better navigate the battlefield where he has you. Here's a second application. Man your post instead of going AWOL. Man your post instead of going AWOL. AWOL, A-W-O-L, is an acronym used by U.S. Armed Forces. It stands for absent without leave. It refers to a soldier who has abandoned his or her post without permission or without being granted leave. Now, depending on how long and the circumstances surrounding the desertion, guilty soldiers often receive a court-martial, they forfeit pay, some get a dishonorable discharge, and some, again, depending on the circumstances, will face from one month up to a year of jail time. Now, the reasons for such strong accountability in our armed forces should be obvious, right? We, our armed forces know that we cannot protect our borders and our interests across the world if soldiers are able just to leave whenever they want because it's too hard or they don't like it anymore. 
Well, just imagine how much more devastating it is to the Lord's church when there are Christians that go AWOL. They decide they don't want to fight anymore. They decide they don't want to be in the battle anymore. It's too hard. So they don't engage. They're passive. We're conscientious objectors. And if the U.S. Armed Forces give those kinds of consequences to their soldiers, can you imagine what the Lord will do with Christians who have been AWOL throughout their life? Now, I am not suggesting that the Lord will give severe punishment to believers. However, I think the scriptures make a very strong argument that he will withhold rewards they could have had because they didn't fight. And that those believers for eternity, forever and ever, will get to see their brothers and sisters who were faithful being commended and enjoying the rewards of their service here on earth. Whereas the AWOL Christians will live with regret for eternity, not able to go back and fight the war again on earth. Not able to go back and get a do-over, a mulligan. But all this, all this raises a deeper question that I think we need to wrestle with momentarily before we close. And that is, why do so many professing believers seem to go AWOL? I, I think A.W. Tozer exposed the root cause of this in his book titled, This World, Playground or Battleground. Tozer says that Christianity used to be a dominant influence in our country because believers viewed this world as a battleground. And in the early years of our nation, most Americans believed in the devil, sin, and hell. They also believed in God, righteousness, and heaven. And believers used to look at heaven as a place to go after returning from war. And these facts haven't changed. So what did? Well, Tozer explains. He writes this, quote, Believers started thinking of this world not as a battleground, but a playground. We now believe we are not here to fight, but rather to frolic. Excuse me. We believe we are not in a foreign land, but rather at home. We are no longer getting ready to live, but we are already living. And the best we can do is to rid ourselves of our inhibitions and our frustrations and to live this life to the full. The idea that this world is a playground instead of a battleground has now been accepted in practice by a vast majority of Christians. In other words, I think... Dr. Tozer is saying, we need to go back to seeing the world as God sees it. And so it begs a question. Are you 
living in this world like it is a playground or a battleground. All Christ followers have been drafted into a spiritual war. And if the Lord tarries and this world that we're living in continues on its current course, there will be many more battles to win for the Lord. And I know without a doubt that if our church can learn to be strong in the Lord, a thousand years from now, again, if the Lord tarries, there will be Christ followers who look back on us and they say, what that church did there, that was their finest hour. And it will be, even if it means we have to stand alone. Would you join me as we close in prayer? We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.